Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. We are here the week of September 12th, 2023 to September 15th, 2023. And it is a cloudy and uh, kind of rainy-ish. It's a fall. It's a it's fall. A fall. It's yeah. bit, there's that crisp in the air. I, mean, I keep telling everybody, you wake up and you have that crisp. That crisp in the air, you know what I'm crisp. talking about? Crisp. Like a packet of crisps. A packet Very of British. crisps. Very British. Yeah. Are those chips? Those are chips, th- right? No, no, no. I don't think they're different. What well, are they? Crisps chips are the are, same as chips. They're not cookies, right? What are cookies? No, I think Britain? crisps are cookies. Cri- yep. And chips and uh, and yeah, chips are fries. Oh, chips are fries. Crisps are cookies. I think biscuits so. are cookies. Biscuits are cookies. No, because biscuits aren't the same as a cookie. I've had a British biscuit, and they're their own thing. They're like a biscotti thing. Yeah, they just don't like. They don't have the amount of sugar, or you know, they're very, they're like a harder cookie. They're, they're not like they're not a cookie. I would they have, have like biscuit tins that you eat biscuits uh. out of. They'd be more like what are like the Toll House ones that you get, you know, around the holidays. They're similar to that. Yeah, yeah, those are the blue. They have things like that hard that your texture. grandma keeps the sewing yes. stuff in. And the, yeah, and they last for like a century. Like I think yeah. you probably still eat the cookies. You know, they something you put in like a bomb shelter. You can eat them. You know, years and years later. Why do the British people hate food? That's a good question. They do have that good H and M sauce. Though you ever had H and M? I think it's H and M sauce. It's like Is an A one like almost. Oh, yeah, right. it's like a Worcestershire base. Yeah, okay. it's good stuff. That's good stuff. You want to get it? I have a chicken update. I'll give you a chicken update at the end. Chicken here. update. Oh, you want to give a chicken update at the end? Yeah. Um, football updates. Um, Nebraska's not good. Uh, I, I have a, a request from a buddy of mine who listens to the pod regularly. He okay. thinks that we should stop doing uh, me asking you what, what the over-under is going to be for the Nebraska game, whether we'll cover. He thinks I should just ask you uh, what the over-under on turnovers is. Um, so well, who's our you, starting if you <laughs> <laughs> Oops. I think it's going to be a Carney local. I think it, it is. It sounds like it's going to be. So that then do you put the over-under three? Let's say over-under three. I, it's an we'll unknown. Put the line at I, three. I don't know. I think uh, it'll, it, yeah, I, I would be around three. Okay. If we lose to Northern Illinois, is that it for you? Are you done watching this season or? No, I'll always watch. Okay. I'm, I'm. I'm but a Nebraska you, boy. Yeah, but yeah, but you then start to do because I start to do that is then I'll just go do something in the other room like will I start mowing the yeah. lawn at halftime? Mow a lawn yeah. at halftime yeah. or like it's like okay now I'm gonna go make lunch or you know yeah. oh the kids want to go outside okay whatever I'm not watching this anymore. I mean I'll, I'll passively pay attention. I might go to more uh, you know pumpkin patches on Saturdays. Yeah, well, that, mm, I don't know if you want to put that in the public sphere, okay? If uh, that I can't go to public. No, if Mister, <laughs> if your wife is banned. out there, you do not want to go to more pumpkin. Oh no, it's fine. Okay, hey, that's the longest I think we've ever done for an that intro. That's a good intro. Look at us talking. It's almost like we hey, haven't talked peop- at all today. For the people who hang around and want to hear just the intro. Uh, you know, fast forward to the outro, and you you got an earful today. Well, let's start with the ex parte summary. Go ahead with the Supreme Court. We got three cases. Carson. Yes. First off, we have State v. Beaupre and motion for new trial, new evidence. I got State v. Allen. This is a supplemental opinion, and I could probably talk about it all now, ex parte. But I'll simply say, supplemental. Your turn. Wow, that was great. Smooth. Okay, Thank State you. v. Dolinar. Civil forfeiture, double jeopardy. Sounds great. Let's get started with the Supreme Court. Carson, you're up. All right. So jumping into State versus Beaupre, and I, I don't know. I must have done something um, to offend someone because right now the list of opinions 
have just absolutely been a deluge upon me. So we have another uh, 50 page opinion that we start out with an absolute whopper. Um, and another one of these opinions, uh, very old case, but um, very serious matter. Uh, this regard is in regards to um, a killing of two individuals uh, in a rural farmhouse by Scotts Bluff, Nebraska in 1988. And so uh, Mr. Beaupre was convicted of two counts of first degree murder, two counts of robbery and two counts of using a firearm to commit a felony based on that incident. So, again, ton of facts here. Already, uh, of course, when you get a case that's from 1988, a ton of procedural posture as far as, uh, you know, there's a ton of background that's already happened here, uh, motions for um, new trial and then other post-conviction relief issues. And the big issue here on appeal and, and the the Supreme Court deals with a lot of things here, but basically is that uh, there is an issue as far as a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. And so there's a pretty good discussion there as to uh, what is required to get a, um, uh, to get relief in a situation where you are asking for a new trial based on uh, newly acquired evidence. And so they, again, go through that, all of that information, if that's something you have that's an issue. You know, this is one of those opinions where it, it reads a lot like a law review article as far as the analytical framework and the statutes and everything that's required uh, goes. But then they start to dig into the, the issues of newly discovered evidence and what actually exists in this situation, um, what documentation is required, and whether or not that burden is met. And so here uh, there was some basically information uh, that's alleged by Mr. Beaupre that there um, was another individual who was in the house at the time that the murders happened um, who had heard a voice that wasn't uh, Beaupre's during the killings and so therefore that was going to be uh, different evidence uh, that, that was newly discovered could not have been discovered at the time. Uh, the Supreme Court deals with that. It's it, Again, it's kind of interesting. It's one of those issues where some of this evidence had already existed in prior appeals and so a lot of this is uh, simply cumulative and things that have already been uh, dealt with. There's other evidence regarding the murder weapon, um, potentially it being stolen, ballistic evidence, um, a missing piece of evidence in relation to that firearm. Um, and then there was, and this I guess is just maybe a really unique uh, aspect of this trial and, and a unique set of facts that was very particular um, here, but, and, and I think is, is kind of one of the, the maybe tidbits that you pick out as far as um, interesting evidence. But the individual who was one of the individuals who was shot uh, prior to his passing, uh, the theory is that he had taken um, grease and had written um, basically just the starting letters to make out Jeff and Beaupre um, next to his body. Uh, and so there were handwriting experts, there were uh, pathology experts, and basically everyone opining whether or not this was possible to have been written by him, whether it was written uh, at the time of death, whether he would have been able to live long enough to have written all this information. And so that was kind of a, a unique issue that was dealt with in this case. Not a giant issue on this post-conviction relief or, or motion for new trial, but something that was very interesting in the underlying case and then that our, our Supreme Court deals with. Um, but eventually they affirm uh, finding that uh, that dismissing the motion and, and supporting evidence without evidentiary he hearing was not error by the district court. Um, and again, dealt with that by affirming. How many pages was that? 
52. 52. Okay, well, uh, the caption here is Wow, one. you've got a whopper. You're holding <laughs> this one up. This is great. Okay. Uh, the caption here is one, and then I got a paragraph. Anyway, it's a supplemental opinion. State v. Allen, uh, what the court did here, the uh, state, uh, after the everything was affirmed for the defendant here, Mr. Allen, the state filed a motion for rehearing, um, claiming some uh, matters in the opinion uh, were err, err, err. And, and uh, they overruled the motion, but they modified the opinion. Uh, they clarified a second paragraph uh, regarding uh, when a new trial may be granted for juror misconduct. So there's a uh, little section that's going to be changed uh, in the prior um, State v. Allen decision. And that's it for that case. Okay. Next case we come to. Good work, Mr. Bray, by the way. That was absolutely wonderful. I, I appreciate your kudos. Thank Kudo, you. Kudos to you. <laughs> Thank How you, many Eric. pages was that again? I, you know, Two, honestly, can we call it one? A half a page? Okay. Uh, you know, if I was sworn in, I'd say uh, three quarters of a page. Three quarters of a page. Okay. So come to State versus Dolinar, and this is an appeal from the District Court of Buffalo County. And the big issue uh, here is whether or not uh, Jeopardy had attached at the time of a hearing on uh, forfeiture under Nebraska Revised Statute Section 28-431 for money that was seized in a vehicle um, while the appellant was a passenger and that vehicle was involved in uh, allegations that related to the uniform Controlled Substances Act. And so basically what happens here is Dolan R is um, arrested, is charged with a class 2A felony for uh, two counts of distribution of a controlled substance and then also um, for possession of a controlled substance, a class 4 felony. And as a part of that, there was $12,000 in mixed U.S. currency that was in several rubber bands, was under the passenger seat. Um, and then in a couple other areas, driver's door, and then a backpack. And so here uh, there is a criminal complaint that is filed in county court before the information was filed in district court where the state had a separate petition for this forfeiture under 28431. And basically what happens here is that uh, they are alleging that the currency was used or intended to be used in facilitating a violation of the uh, Substance Act uh, by the uh, individuals who were charged, including uh, Dolinar, and here uh, they pursued forfeiture. So Dolinar didn't file an answer or a demur or anything uh, to participate in this forfeiture action. And on December 15th of 2021, uh, the district court ordered that the cash was forfeited to the state. And so it is based on that that uh, Dolinar files the plea and bar and leads us to this case. And so basically the entire argument here is if it is a case where Jeopardy has attached based on the forfeiture issue. And so the entire argument comes about this statute, um, essentially what the legislature intended with the forfeiture statute um, and what exactly the posture of that statute is. And Essentially, again, we're going through a ton of legislative history. We're going through a ton of uh, legislative intent and trying to read into this statute and what it, exactly it means. Um, but here it is found by our Nebraska Supreme Court that the intent under 28431 uh, is to be civil and that the uh, forfeiture claim is uh, not uh, to be a criminal criminal punishment uh, that is punitive and would uh, invoke double jeopardy. And so they hold and find that the 
section uh, for civil forfeiture is a civil proceeding, not a criminal proceeding, and therefore there is no uh, double jeopardy issue. And so the sanction, even if you lose the money raised under that statute, is civil in nature, not criminal in nature. And so therefore uh, they found that the plea and bar failed um, and affirmed the district court's decision. That one's interesting. It is an interesting. And, you know, we don't do this a ton, but huge kudos for a creative argument on on something like oh, this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of thinking out of the box and, and seeing a unique issue. Um, so I, I, I definitely see it. And the Supreme Court had to read into this one quite a bit because, again, we go into a lot of legislative language and legislative history on this exact statute because it is something that is not clear. And yeah. so I guess we have the clear-cut answer now. Uh, but it was definitely one of those ones where you need an answer to that question. Well, there you go. Okay, so that's it for Supreme Court? That's it for the Supreme Court. All right, let's go to Court of Appeals. I think you're first up. Yes, and so we start with State v. Hines. Uh, this is an appeal from the District Court of Douglas County. And basically what we have uh, here is that Mr. Hines uh, was asking to, um, to withdraw his no-contest plea uh, from a plea-based conviction for uh, assault and battery under the Omaha uh, City Code. And the big issue here is that he um, had tried to enter a plea um, and at the time that they go to enter the plea, the original charge uh, was to a uh, assault and battery um, sexual touch. And at the time they go to enter the plea, the court says, um, I just want you to understand, Mr. Hines, that this could subject you to um, the Nebraska Sex Offender Registration um act and you could be uh, made to register as a sex offender based on um, this plea-based conviction. The two parties then go back and forth, the state and the defense counsel, and are basically having this dialogue with the court where they're saying, well, our understanding is we're trying to have a factual basis that is not going to allege any sort of sexual touching, and therefore this is not going to be a conviction that's going to be subject to uh, registration under the, the Sex Offender Registration Act. And so there's quite a bit of dialogue and back and forth, and basically what happens is the court goes to um, explain what the defendant is pleading to and at that point in the time at that point in time uh, says that you know this is going to be a conviction for um, assault and battery um, with sexual touching and so the parties not understanding which subsection of the uh code that this is coming under basically are stipulating to this facts thinking that they're stipulating to a set of facts that is not alleging a sexual touching when in reality because of what the court has pronounced they are entering a plea to a uh, assault and battery including the sexual sexual touching which would include the mandatory registration and so after that plea-based conviction and prior to sentencing, it became pretty clear that the court had interpreted the, the stipulation um, to be a non-consensual sexual touch. And so at that point in time, the motion to withdraw uh, a plea is filed. At that hearing, counsel basically tries to clarify and say, hey, this is what we were trying to do, judge. And uh, the state says, yes, we agree. This is what we're trying to do. But, you know, the court took this plea now. And so basically this is just a collateral attack. And, you know, there's no reason to withdraw the plea. And so they go forward. Uh, county court says, no, you're not going to be allowed to withdraw your plea. 
And uh, the district court affirms that. And so this is where we're getting this appeal from. And basically what our court of appeals goes through and says is that here uh, there was enough information um, to demonstrate that um, Hines should have been allowed uh, to withdraw his plea because there was a serious miscommunication um, that basically uh, – misconstrued the implementation of the party's plea agreement as intended and it seemed like it was pretty unbeknownst and through no fault of Hines that he then entered a no contest plea to that and so therefore the court of appeals finds that he had carried his burden to uh, show that it was fair and reasonable to withdraw his plea and have the opportunity to then either enter into a plea that he thought he was entering into um, to enter into a different plea or to proceed uh, to a trial. So again, this was kind of an interesting appeal. It was an interesting stance because it was coming from the county court. And so you're getting a county court transcript on appeal. And that's what our court of appeals was dealing with. Uh, But one of those cases, maybe you want to take a look at if you have a withdrawal of a plea or if you ever have an issue uh, when it comes to trying to get a plea bargain out on the record and what actually uh, comes of that plea bargain. So interesting case from the court of appeals yeah no i I think that one's very valuable if you have something where you need to uh advocate for a withdrawal of a plea uh especially if there's something serious that maybe everybody agrees to that is not going the way everybody agreed it should go uh you should probably take well and a a really interesting case where you are agreeing to what you're pleading to but the factual basis Mm -hmm. has to be in such a way that you know it affects a you know a substantial outcome so Oh, well, good case. Thank you. Um, this is Hohenstein v. Hohenstein. Now, it sounds like a divorce, but it's not. It's a state litigation. There's a pro se party here. The pro se uh, litigant is um, dealing with some uh, family issues. Uh, this is a state litigation from way back. The original litigation was 2013. They litigated everything, and uh, Mr. Hohenstein um, alleged other family members exerted undue influence and he exerted undue influence or vice versa. It's not terribly clear um, in, in what we're doing here. And there was a decision, there was an appeal, all that stuff was buttoned up. Now we had another complaint filed by uh, Mr. Hohenstein and it was subject to a motion to dismiss and a motion uh, for recusal. He tried to recuse the um, judge in charge of the uh case in reviewing the motion to dismiss and ultimately the motion to dismiss was granted uh, for failure to state a claim and there was some motion for recusal was uh, denied Uh, there weren't uh, alleged sufficient grounds and the district court actually imposed sanctions uh, for bringing the action since everything was pretty much decided in the earlier case so he was relitigating everything well, he went and uh, filed an appeal. Uh, the exhibits, then this is the interesting part, I will say, to this one. So he files, uh, they file a motion to dismiss against him, and then they offer exhibits at the uh, motion to dismiss hearing, at the hearing for a motion to dismiss, which, as if you're a regular listener, you know that we touch on this often, transforms it into a motion for summary judgment, and um, it should have been allowed time to respond uh with exhibits if it transforms it from a motion for summary or motion to dismiss into a motion for summary judgment and evidence is offered so he should have had time to do that however he didn't assign that as error uh in his appeal here so the court doesn't get into that but i i mean that that's an issue here um for the motion for uh motion to dismiss which is ultimately granted 
the they went through the motion to recuse they went through recusal factors those recusal factors are not present here and then they affirmed the sanctions against mr hohenstein so hopefully this is uh, the end of that litigation for here but uh, there was a lot of people involved and uh yeah that's the end of that one it was affirmed okay now we come to in ray interest of raven m and caleb m this is an appeal from the county court for of phelps county on a termination of parental rights and so again as we go through with these opinions uh, basically this uh, is a case where uh, it seemed like there were a number of issues in meeting the case plan goals meeting with uh, basic needs safe environment uh, things of that nature multiple cycle psychological evaluations um, and trying to deal with treatment here are the statutory factors uh, the out-of-home placement for 15 out of the last 22 months and then um, on the best interests issue um, again, that had been dealt with quite a bit in the statutory factors, but uh, for grounds for termination. But here, uh, basically, the uh, Court of Appeals leaned heavily on the testimony from a therapist and uh, how critical the stage had become for uh, the children to uh, be able to have a permanent caregiver um, and to form attachment bonds with that individual. And so uh, the Court of Appeals agreed uh, with the county court that it was a time uh, to find permanency for t these two children and affirmed uh, the termination of parental rights. State v. Shepard, um, an individual here, Mr. Shepard, was previously convicted and pled no contest to one count of terroristic threats. As part of a plea deal, he was uh, the plea deal indicated that he would um, the state would not oppose probation. He was given two years probation um, to run consecutive to probation he was already given. Uh, later, the probation was revoked and he was resentenced to one year imprisonment. Now, in this direct appeal that Mr. Shepard filed, he claimed that his sentence was excessive. Um, the state, however, also brought up the issue that there was no, uh, it was plain error for no mandatory post-release supervision being imposed pursuant to statute. The court here uh, finds that it, the sentence is not excessive, it's within the statutory range, uh, but agrees with the state and reverses and remands, uh, remands the case for imposition of the post-release supervision requirement uh, pursuant to statute. So that's pretty much all there is with State v. Shepard. Okay, next case we come to is in the in re interest of London H. Um, and this is an appeal from an adjudication of a minor child uh, finding that the child was abandoned. And kind of interesting facts here. Um, London was originally adjudicated because she was removed from her mother's care um, because her mother was in, involved um, or had some, some issues with drug use. And then in uh, 2023, the state filed a supplemental petition alleging uh, that she was um again within the meeting because uh, she had been abandoned uh, by Mario. And so here what we deal with basically is the fact that uh, there had been a lot of efforts from HHS in the time from when London was originally removed from her mother's care to have contact with Mario. This involved starting an ICPC process and all of these things basically Mario failed to comply with saying that, hey, it's not my responsibility. I should still have my rights to my child. I'm not going to comply with the ICPC because I don't have to show or demonstrate or anything that my home is safe and secure and anything like that um, and basically was just failing to engage because he was he uh, believed or or uh, found that he uh, was not going to have to do any of this because it was none of it with the underlying case was his fault and so 
Essentially, uh, what happens here is he becomes unable or unwilling to participate in the uh, case plan. And so at that point in time, the department is unable to uh, recommend reunification because he's unwilling to participate and unwilling to uh, work with the department or with any of the IC- ICPC process. Um, and so they find uh, that, you know, hey, you're, you've uh, abandoned at this point in time. And so basically the Court of Appeals uh, agrees. Um, they review it and find uh, that there was a preponderance of evidence to support the supplemental petition. And basically, even though he had had uh, contact, even though he'd been part of London's life uh, to some point, he had not uh, provided that consistent care and support. And uh, even though he was blaming the department and um, was saying that it was on the department, the juvenile court, for not allowing him to contact his child and his child being removed, you still have to be willing to participate um, and try to engage uh, in being a part of your child's life in order uh, to to uh, not have that statutory burden be met. And so the Court of Appeals affirmed. Well, fantastic, as far as us being done is concerned. Oh, we're glad we're done? Yeah. Okay. It's Friday afternoon. Oh, yeah. You did September. some You did some heavy lifting there, so <laughs> you, you should be glad to be done. Um, yeah. That was good. I mean... I I, so just get to the chicken talk, since that's <laughs> you've had plenty of time to think about. It. So let's hear. It. What's your okay. chicken take? I uh, had the pleasure of uh, finding a Chick Fil A today and going to, uh, getting the okay, honey okay. pepper pimento ch- sandwich. Ooh, okay. Wow. I uh, the review is it's good. It's a good okay, sandwich. Okay. Uh, the honey uh, pepper pimento overpowers the chicken, so I'm not even going to put it in the same realm of the chicken sandwich wars. It's okay. a different. If it's, it's a different, a different category, different. So is that like where the black and chicken sandwich should go? Like, do you think those are separate that, categories? No, that's still a chicken okay. sandwich. Okay. So this isn't even a chicken sandwich. It's it, more like a. It's a chicken sandwich plus, and I, I I don't I think you can. It's a broad spectrum of something else. There's a Venn diagram of what we're. It's talking like a about. chicken. Chicken cordon bleu version exactly. of a yes. yeah, it's fine. Um, Chicken but, parm, yeah, but it's not what we're after. Okay, which is the whole. You should see. You should have got a. I wish you would have got like a normal chicken sandwich or a spicy chicken sandwich. Oh, I've had those. And maybe well, no, I meant from Chick Fil A. Oh. And throwing a little sauce on there, and then oh. you could have told us. See, because my thing is, everybody always says. You know, what What are you doing, Carson? Why is Chick-fil-A not in there? And I always tell him, you know. It's a sauce. It's a sauce thing. And don't get me wrong. The sauce is good. It, it's very good. The chicken's good. But it has to stand alone. The, you mean the chicken has to stand alone? Yeah. Yeah. And the sandwich has to stand alone. And I it just, does. I don't think it's a top five sandwich. It's uh, it's a bubble. It, yeah. It's, 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 it's in top tier. But it might not, but be, it top might not be top Yeah. And the other thing about it is, and maybe you didn't have this today, sometimes they're a little chintzy. Like, they're a little small. It's a little... If they're busy. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you get a little... You don't get quite the... I don't get the breast I was I was thinking I was I, getting. I will say I said thank you to the employee, and he said thank you back. Wow. Instead of my pleasure. Oh, wow. I, I clutched my pearls and oh. laughed. Oh. <laughs> I said, I'm not yeah, no. spending any more time in this woke Chick-fil-A. No more Chick-fil-A for me. <laughs> How many lines did they have? Which one did, did you go to the one on 40th? Uh, yeah, 40th, yeah. yeah. 40th. They were, they yeah. Were, they were, They're so fast. It's uh, So fast, but huge, huge lines. Oh, but, it's unbelievable. All right. Uh, that's it for uh, Point 2 Law Review this week. Brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Um, offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. Anything else, sir? No, go back to episode one. Oh, yeah. Episode one for the disclaimer. Everybody have a great week. Have a great week.